Hello, my name is Philip Squire. I'm the CEO of Consali, and I'm delighted that Waldemar Adams is here to join us. Waldemar is the Senior Global Vice President uh, for SAP's Customer Success Division, where he's working within the CEO office. And in his role, he is intimately connected with the communication that takes a place between the uh, senior exec board and the rest of the organization. His research topic is how storytelling can help bridge the gap between management in teams under the title of improved leadership communication. Uh, it's a unique topic. It's never been done before. I've certainly learned a huge amount from reading his dissertation, and I'm absolutely delighted that he's here to share his insights with us and the listeners of this Mastercast series. So thank you hugely to Waldemar for joining us. I think if we could start off at the very beginning with you telling the listeners a little bit more about who you are. Sure. And thanks for the opportunity, Phil, talking to you. And to, to the listeners, of course. And yeah, my name is, is Waldemar Adams. And as you can hear from my accent, I'm from Germany. And actually, it's Adams <laughs> when people say Adams, right? And I work for SAP right now since the acquisition of Business Objects, another company in 2007. And I came to Business Objects through another acquisition of ACTA in 2001. And so there is a kind of chains of acquisitions and companies I was working for in sales and sales-related roles. Most of the topic have been about analytics, business performance, and risk management. So that was the basics of what I did in these different companies when I started to work for software companies in the, in the second half of the 90s. Before that, I, I had my own company and we were selling computer equipment. At that time in the early 90s, you built your own machines, your CPU with a little bit of RAM and a dose of hard drive. And you still had to connect your keyboard, of course, right? That was before internet was popular and before you had uh, Wi-Fi in your house. Mm. And, and before that, actually, I, was, had my, I had my, my one-person company. I was selling software, which I also programmed by myself. And that was starting in the, when I was 16. Actually, programming I did uh, very early uh, when I was like 12. And at that time... Uh, that was really a nerd thing <laughs> and, and not very popular. Actually, years later, when I was using the, the train, people talked about floppy drives. And I thought, now it became mainstream. <laughs> I think, no, no I'm, I'm not, not a nerd anymore if people in the train speak about floppy drives and everyone knows. But now no one even knows what a floppy drive is. So that, even that is, is a long time. Yeah, so doing something with technology like programming and creating programs that was the very start but the very next was selling it <laughs> and uh, so i was also interested to to tell a good story to interest other people in the things which i did uh, which i built or which i sold them to assemble their own machines or use the software in a certain in a certain way 
And I, I was working in sales support, pre-sales, working with services teams. I had my own sales teams as a regional head of uh, the analytics business for Europe, Middle East, and Africa for quite some years. And then a few years ago, I moved into this global role, running the programs in the COO office of our customer success organization. That's the melting pot of sales services, pre-sales, and customer experience. We call it customer success at SAP. All customer-facing people. And my core focus in this, in this organization, in this role is to improve our business performance, to improve the operational excellence in a large 100,000 people organization like SAP. In, a, in this big matrix, there's always room for improvement to uh, better oil the machine, to rediscover things which we did successfully in the past or some of the new things we started to do better than before and to, of course, develop new practices and skills to prepare yourself for the next generation of business, which needs to be done. That's a little bit of the, the journey back and forth of my business life. That's terrific. So let's, let's come on to the topic of your dissertation and your interest uh, in storytelling. You've labeled your dissertation Improved Leadership Communication, and the mm -hmm. subtitle is How Storytelling Can Help Bridge the Gap Between Management and the Team, with, of course, the emphasis, I think, very much around storytelling. So I yeah. wonder if you could start by, you know, why this topic? Why did you choose mm -hmm. it? Yeah, the when I did my master. I was thinking about what is a possible topic. We talked in, in the master, we learned about coaching, about leadership, different principles. And what I've figured out was the glue of everything is the communication, right? And also in my role, in my roles in the past, it's always about telling people about convincing people, about motivating people. If you are a leader, if you are a manager, you want to bring out the best uh, in the people, you want to develop the people, actually that's also what you need. Uh, but how do you do it? Through communication, through speaking to them. And during this master journey, I, I came up from of this quote by White, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. And I've seen that very often, right? The problem of sender and receiver. <laughs> you, you, you think you said some, something and you actually then surprised what the other person understood, right? Uh, so Chinese whisper can already start with two people. <laughs> and, and that I've seen as a kind of challenge. And uh, that is why I came up with leadership communication. My master thesis needs to be about leadership communication with an emphasis on storytelling. Mm. But then I figured out, oh, that's huge. <laughs> that's a lot. And why the storytelling? I had to rediscover that because also on my research, I've read this book, Give and Take, from an author called Grant. And I've 
I, I was reading it and I thought, well, that's a good book, right? Uh, I, I couldn't stop reading it. And I thought, why is that so easy to read in difference to some other books, which might be a little bit dry, a little bit theoretical. And then I figured out this gentleman, Grant, he was using stories. All this book was like a big story. And then I thought, oh yeah, that's interesting how this can motivate me to get through this content. And then it reminded me one of my books, which I read in the late 80s, Bruno Bettelheim, that's a that's a guy who studied uh, at Freud and he used, he, he wrote this book, Children Need Sto uh, Fairy Tales, right? Actually, the, the English title is The Use of Enchantment and the meaning and importance of fairy tales. But the German title, word by word translated is Children Need Fairy Tales. And I thought, why is that, right? And I read this and most of the fairy tales are quite brutal. <laughs> Remember that. And, and that was very interesting. And that was my first touch point when I really thought about Aya stories, right? There is something behind, there is a principle, there is a mechanism, there is a meaning why we do this. Not just tell the facts, we put it in a context and we create this story around the facts to better tell it. And uh, so I came up with this improved leadership communication, a little bit arrogant, right? Reinvent the wheel of communication. And then I figured out, oh yeah, that's maybe a, a little bit too much. So I wanted to focus then just on storytelling, skip all of the other communication. How can we weave in storytelling? And then I ended actually up with storytelling in written communication. So even more narrowing down because I thought that's sufficient for it. And I think I was also right. And why that? Because when I was looking more into the details, I figured out, yeah, there is a lot of storytelling trainings and coaching content, but this is all for the outside audience. You are a leader, a manager, a person, you are on stage in a meeting and you want to convince the customer, you want to convince the audience. And this is how you can use storytelling when you stand in front of the audience and, and you speak and the body language and everything. But this is not necessarily the business reality because the customers that's one side of the business but what's with the employees what's with the people in your team the people in your company and most of that you do not stand on stage you do not have the one-on-one -on -one meetings how often did you met your ceo in a meeting or your regional manager at sap once a year at the sales kickoff right? this is the time when they all move on stage and tell their go to market statements. Most of the time, 99% of the communication of the managers, you see your managers through their email communication. And how do you want to make sure that you reach the people, that you can motivate your people, that they can tell them a, an interesting story, which gives them purpose, which motivates them to do the job in the way you want, instead of just telling them, hey, your new target to achieve is 200 million. <laughs> Good luck by doing that. Right. Yeah, I, I love that quote that you mentioned right at the very beginning. When I read your dissertation, this is the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that's taken place. 
I would actually, in my case, take it back one other step, which is I think I've sent emails, but they've remained in my head. I actually haven't written the email and neither have I sent it. So my problem with communication is I think I've physically sent an email, but I haven't physically sent it. It's still filed away in my head. My, my team often remark with me, Phil, is that an email you've sent or is it still filed away in your head somewhere? <laughs> so, so I think that uh, my team would probably smile at that particular comment as well. But I think in your case, you assumed it had been sent. You know, you have the illusion, like you say, that you've said something with a certain meaning, but how it's interpreted, you know, could be something uh, completely different. Yeah. And one thing is why we communicate, but we, and you had this example about you as a sender of information, right? You wanted to craft an email, but how often do we receive an information or how often do we want to get something but we do not get it how often do we see a lack of communication that we feel as receivers and i think that was also th something which was a motivation for me because i'm in the middle management right i have people above me in the organization of our company and i have people below me and what i was looking into myself what was the communication I was maybe missing or looking for? What was the communication I would like to get? And in, in which kind of style? And, and then I also was trying to extrapolate it to my people and the people I'm working with and, and think about maybe they are the same, right? We are all humans. Maybe they're also missing the same type of information or the same format. And later on, when I did this data, that was my assumption, right? But later on, when I did my, my data collection and I had interviews with the people, I got a lot of proof points for this thesis. And again, not a surprise, right? Because we are all people, all in the same business, all in the same company. So why should it be different? So I'd love to come back to your data collection and how you mm. did it and what were your findings maybe a little bit later on. But I know mm. that when you set off on your journey to explore this topic, you clearly were influenced by a number of people. And I mm. think you've already mentioned one of them, perhaps, where it started for you. But I wonder if you could share a little bit how you went about your research on this topic and, and who were your biggest influences? Yeah, once I, I made the decision to focus on storytelling and communication, I was surprised that there are so many story things around me. And it's sometimes if this phenomena maybe if you have a new car or you're interested in a new car, and I know you're a nice car, <laughs> by the way, you see it all around, right? Before you never notice it, but then all of a sudden you always see this type of car, this brand. And before you haven't, why is that, right? And this is only because we have this framing in, in our focus and, and this is how we try to digest all this information which, which comes up to us, right? And, and then we have this kind of broader path for information for this uh, type of stuff we expect. And when I was 
triggered on stories, I have seen a lot of stories around me. And as I said, first of all, this Bettelheim thing that was fascinating me in the, since, since the 80s. And, and for me, it was also like a time machine traveling back. I was thinking a lot about things I came up with originally. For example, I use campfire and light as an as a meta for my for my uh, dissertation so it's all referring to light and colors and optics to that extent campfire warms tribe it also for me it was clear but then i also thought oh, wait a second in the also in the 80s when i was younger there was this new tv series amazing stories from George Lucas that was short stories and nothing special. And the interesting thing is the trailer, the, the intro, which they showed at, the, at each of the programs was a kind of, yeah, a campfire where elder of a, of a tribe sitting around and they told stories and then it turned into a kind of roller coaster ride through the different centuries. And then it, all came back to a TV finally. And on the TV, you have seen then the initial screen, mm-hmm. the picture of the campfire and the storytellers. And, and I think deep in my mind that influenced me, this picture of people sitting around at the campfire, right? With the darkness around and trying to explain what life is and what's the meaning of life, what's the purpose. That was in general stories. Then Bettelheim was why stories so important for us as human beings, as for kids, for example. But then Drake, that was something I came up with thanks to Christine Eastman. She recommended Drake when I told her that I was interested in stories. And he wrote a nice article about the storytelling organization. So Drake was really then the path to for me to understand that stories are also relevant in the business and not only in our private life and and maybe everything else except the business because business needs to be serious and uh, mm. money and <laughs> right no it's also absolute appropriate to have stories there and one as i said this lucky moments also then in the spring of that year i i was at the gardner event in london and every year they have a guest speaker, right? I have what this is something totally different. Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep, fascinating book. He was a guest speaker the year after. And they have every year different guest speakers, different types of, of science or, or areas, right? Why sleep is so important. But that year, Matthew Lunn was on stage. And Matthew Lunn, he was... He's, he came on stage. I had no idea who he is. And he said, I, I'm the man who makes people cry. That's my job description. And I'm the chief storyteller of Pixar movies. So he's the guy with his team who wrote the books of all those Pixar movies, Toy Story, Monster Inc. <laughs> up All those movies we all know and we all like. And that was super fascinating. I was so thankful that I met him exactly at the time when I needed it, right? And he was opening for me this chapter that, that stories 
something we cannot escape from. There is a certain aspect of neuroscience, of, of hormones like dopamine, cortisol, that will be, that are triggered. And that's the interesting thing. I've read this later on in some scientific research. So you can really measure it in experiments that both when you tell a story and we listen to stories, our brain activity starts to be different, right? It's a different, you, you can see a different, you can measure a different wave form actually. We as a species, we are hard for, hardwired for stories, right? That's how we survived. We are the survivors of people who sat together, shared experience through stories from generation to generation. And that is something which I, I think was very important to understand and also to argue with other people that stories are not something you make and use or not, like a tie, right? You have a jacket with or without a tie. Hmm. No, it's not. It presses your buttons. You cannot escape, right? They have an impact on you. And I think that is then something which, which is important because why waste this opportunity if you have this fast path to people, emotions and attention to positively impact them by sharing information in a special sense. So that was Lun, very fascinating guy. There's also an interesting recording on YouTube, which is 80% of the session I have seen. So if you Google for Matthew Lunn and storytelling in business, you can have 45 very interesting minutes of your time. And that was like, what is it all about? But how do you then actually craft a story? And there was another author, Murray Nussel. He's, he had the six principles of the narrative method for listening and storytelling, right? And so he, with him, I, I found this building blocks, right? There are actually more, there are more authors. And then he had the six principles and Nuruddin, she had the five steps. <laughs> and from Drake, they, he also has six principles, but different ones and his story-driven organization. So for me, those authors like Nosl, like Lan, uh, he also wrote a book, obviously, Drake, Robinson, because that was the focus then on the writing stuff. I missed that, right? I wanted to focus not only on stage and, and uh, mm -hmm. telling stories on stage, but also the written stuff. And Robinson, she also had this uh, very interesting book uh, about creating emotions because if you're in, in front of an audience, you can use your body language, you can use your tone, your voice, your acting. <laughs> and, but if you have your email, that's a very lonely place. How do you trigger emotions by typing your characters in Arial 12? And, and Robinson was the one which also had this whole universe about creating emotions in written. Yeah, no, it was fascinating to look at your literature research. And there was just one, one point that I picked up from one of those books. Uh, I think it was Drake, mm. where he talks about the old metaphors for business, which are war science and the machine, he talked about. And, uh, and he described them as being distancing and constraining an organization's ability to envisage possibilities for action. So I'm quoting from your paper here. 
Yeah, I found that quite interesting because quite often the metaphors that one uses in business are not so much about emotion, but they are about achievement, performance, and so on. So, yeah, I think you got me hooked when I started to, to see the kind of books that that kind of you were interested in following. And, and you know, Phil, I, I, that's why I said there are books about communication. There's a lot. There's a lot about stories as such as well. But most of that is really about the the external audience. What you said about Drake was a very good example of the few research which is about internal com communication, right? The storytelling, the metaphor inside an organization when the CEO gets on stage and is doing his rah-rah speech about fighting the competition, right? There, there's a lot of war terminology there sometimes or about the purpose of the company. But that is very little. Most of it is really you tell stories to convince the others. Where is the missing piece? Where's that piece which tells that your employees deserve to have the same attention like your customers, right? They shouldn't be, they should not be forgotten. You mentioned this machine analogy. It's not a machine, it's all people. And even if people think about this well-oiled machine, but it's all people which are not working together like a Swiss clock with all these wheels. There's a lot of friction there and, and the oil in the machine is equivalent to the stories in our communication to keep this mm -hmm. all connected and all moving, right? That's a great, a great analogy. You've done a lot of reading inspired by different authors and then you set about your kind of research and... I wonder if you could just very briefly outline the types of research method you used. Okay, given that your focus was mainly around written communication. Yeah, first of all, I thought on the one hand, there is something I can measure because communication, written communication, you can easily measure. You can measure the emails you receive, the newsletter. So that was one building block to evaluate, to check the pieces of communication which we get in an organization. And I was, we have seven regions. I was focusing in my research on three regions out of the seven, actually the everything which is like Europe, European. We have, we split it in three different parts, but technically it's all Europe, Middle East, Africa, which is also my core focus and also most of it, we share the same culture, we share the same kind of values as well. And then I thought, okay, that's the, the easy thing to me measure. Then the other thing is I, I need to speak with the people, right? So that was this mix of quantitative and qualitative research. On the one thing, I wanted to have a certain number of people to go for one-on-one -on -one interviews. And that was the, the qualitative aspect and to measure the text, I was also coming up with hermeneutics. That was something which was new to me. Actually, it was created centuries ago from monks to, to analyze the Holy Bible, right? And uh, ancient texts. 
and here it was not with the same ex intent, but it was actually the same, right? To measure the message of uh, the text, to measure the number of communication, to measure the sentiment inside, to measure is it using media or not? Has it pictures? Has it videos? What is the style? What is the format? So that was also very interesting and then of course i'm live in a culture of sap so ethnography was very important for me as a methodology to work and operate in this space and to some extent it was also auto ethnography because i'm also part of this organization i'm also using communication both in a sender and receiver and i also used and wanted to use storytelling to to tell the results of my master dissertation as well, right? Yeah, a real a real mix of data. And I suppose the next question is going to be around what were your what were your key findings? What's what maybe surprised you about some of the outputs of the research you had? Mm. Yeah, very good question. First of all, I had some assumptions, and I think. In a research, it's so tempting to find proof points for your assumptions and that it feels so good <laughs> that you made the right ideas. And I think that's also a risk, right? So this whole aspect of reflection and self-reflection, that was very important. It's not about making quick check checks in your boxes about your initial assumptions and how great you are with your, with the problem you find and the solution you find because there's always this aspect or this facet which you may not thought about at first and when I had the assumption that we do not have the right communication or the that the the kind of stories are missing and it's too much fact driven and then I spoke with people and they said uh, in in different gender, different countries, different roles with leading teams, with being in a team. I want to be broad. And of course, you need to find a certain uh, a balance uh, of people. But then I, I quickly saw this pattern and that people also had this impression that the communication was not necessarily right and was missing. And at that time, it would maybe have been a shortcut for me to just say, hey, fantastic issue, solution, perfect, I'm, I'm so smart. But then I also figured out it's not that easy. So for example, there is, uh, I remember that in, in one of the regions, the regional president, he created this new video format. So before it was like an email and then he embedded a video in this email. And for me, it still counts as uh, written communication because mm. the transport, the media is, is an email and he's, it's, there's still some text uh, above and below. And he said, we were blown away. He was speaking to us. That's fantastic, right? Uh, a different level of communication. And then fast forward a few months later, he said, yeah, but then we just noticed, obviously he did this message for us in five minutes between two interview, two meetings, two customer meetings or two internal meetings. So yeah, it's so easy to su positively surprise people with a new gadget, 
uh, let's talk it like that, like a video, but it does not necessarily last. So what is the thing which is really important, right? Is it the gadget, the video, or is it the message, the content? And people are bored or even frustrated because they see, ah, it's, he does not speak to us. He looks like speaking to us, but not for the right intention. It, he squeezes us in, in, into meetings just to have a check on this box. And, and then I also said, yeah, wait a second. Most of those guys, in particular the high leaders, they do not create their own communication. We have comms people, we have communication people. There's roles in an organization which do nothing else than communication in written for customers, for article, on Twitter. So I said, okay, I, I measured the communication. I measured the number of emails, the type, the words, the length, the sentiment. I spoke the, to the people who receiving information. I, I thought, what is my own perception by reading it and receiving it? But I totally forgot to speak with the people who are actually most of them crafting that, right? They are the ghost writers mm. of the communication. <clears throat> and what is their task? What, how do they see the world? And I spoke with some of them for the regional management and that was really eye-opening. And that is why I changed in the middle of my data collection, a lot of it, because I figured out I missed it initially and I needed, to, that's a crucial part of the analysis. And it was very interesting to see that a lot of them have been really frustrated <laughs> because all of that, the good things which they learned. And they said, they always said, yeah, Valdemar's story is very good, but we are not allowed to, right? They want to have the facts, not too much words. We cannot, one of the ladies said, I have the clear order. We shouldn't steal sales so much time from speaking to their customers. So this information needs to be short and crisp and only facts, which was really fascinating because when you then speak with the receivers, a lady in management, she said, I, I was now I've, I was reading that this person was promoted to get this job, but why he is, why is he qualified? What's his background? Right? I'm just reading the facts, but <laughs> thank you so much. That doesn't tell me anything. So obviously a big gap of what the leaders ask the communication guys to build and then what the receivers actually are missing. So the communications people would have the skills to do it, but not necessarily they do. And, and again, this with this, when I did the hermeneutics and the statistics, I was also very surprised because from some people, some managers, the only communication, like 98% was job changes. Some people knew in the role, some people retired, right? Nothing else. I didn't expect it, but I thought that's not a lot about purpose and life and, and meaning. And, yes, I uh, just looking at your pie charts that, that you've got. And I, yes, I think 30, was it 35% you've got here of all internal communication? Yeah, and that was an average, right? If you go for some individual leaders, it's even higher. Yeah. So what do they have to tell, right? And I do not want to blame people for that. And also from the comms people, I learned that some said people do not want to go for risk. They do not want to... And that is also what I also found in my, my research and reading that people may perceive stories as a weakness, in particular in business, that it's not precise enough or they do not look 
maybe as tough as business oriented or successful as they want to look like, which I think is, is not the right thing because what I also read, learned from my data collection interviews is that of course people like the human touch, right? We do not, leaders do not need to be superheroes. They do not need to be invincible. They can, because it's also interesting to learn how to, how you pass a period which is not working well to be successful again, right? In, in fairy tales, you do not read that the hero goes, crosses the forest, slams the dragon and marries the princess, right? That would be a very boring, <laughs> non-interesting story because we want to know that he had issues by conquering the forest and he was losing track and then he came back. And we want to, to know how people passed the challenging times to be successful. And if you skip that and only show success, that's not the best possible story you can tell. Hmm. I'm just wondering if you make any connection between imagination and storytelling hmm. uh, at all, because the, the great thing about reading a book or following a storytell is the imagery that you picture in your own yeah. mind as you're reading something. And I wonder if that... I didn't, I'm not sure I picked it up in your dissertation, but I'm just wondering whether this helps with sustaining a story somehow. It's, it's what the science does to build an mm. image perhaps in your head. Yeah. Yeah. Actually from Robinson, there is a lot of information about how to create emotions, how to create an image. Mm. And there are story arc arches, archetype of stories where you have, actually, they look like a chain curve. So it tension goes up and then it goes yeah. down again. And, yeah. and you have then this, you have only seven, uh, their research is not in sync of the numbers of archetypes of stories, but usually it's seen as seven. Some said it's 51. <laughs> I think that's a little bit extreme, but seven is usually one. And then you can apply classic stories like Romeo and Juliet to that. And you see, ah, yeah, that's this one, right? And, and so there are principles and building blocks to help to craft a story. And I think at the final end, it's not rocket science. And you, you I think what, for example, I learned when you refer to Drake and said the machine or war, it's not about the one metaphor which works it's about finding a metaphor and it will work right as i told you initially i was working all my life in the it industry and for a lot of people that's a lot of bits and bytes it's not self-explaining at all i need to tell people why this analytics software helps them how planning can support to achieve their targets what the heck artificial intelligence and machine learning. We, we had this before we called it machine learning. We, we had this mm -hmm. in my portfolio, right? About advanced analytics. That was the, the old fashioned name of it. And that's a lot of super boring algorithms and neural network and B-Treef. And that will not fly if you talk about the facts. So I was learning in sales and working with people all the time to build a metaphor. Like I used the metaphor of light and campfire in my dissertation. 
like I use on other analogies because people can easily extrapolate from the things they know to the things they do not know, right? From the things they have some experience or emotions to something where we want to bring them to, where we want to tell them something new, right? And I think my advice is do not find the perfect story. Do not find the perfect metaphor. Find a story and a metaphor. We are all used to tell stories, right? In our private life, to our friends, to our, to, uh, to our, the people we, we, in the family. So there is a lot of storytelling in us anyhow, right? It's more like discovering or rediscovering and translated for the, the purpose of business life as well. Because also what I learned through the interviews and what I learned when I was looking in myself using reflection, what is the communication I am missing, right? And why I'm missing that? Because I'm not a machine, I'm a human, I have emotions, I need, I better have a purpose. I, I need more than zeros and ones. And if people look inside, it can help them to craft the story to tell the others in their team. Mm. Can, can I just come back to just the, the data analytics and then we can mm. move more into the content later on. But we've talked about and that when you looked at all the internal comms, the majority of them were announcements and you mentioned that some managers did more of this than others. Mm. And then you had newsletters. Actually, that was a higher number. 38% of all communications were news newsletters. Mm. And then you had information, 9%, and directive were 18%. Yeah. Did you conclude from this that there, there would be an ideal balance between them at all? Or do you think the situation... You need to look, use whatever is appropriate for the situation. But mm. just interested to know if you, in an ideal world, what would you say the balance should be? Yeah, that's also a very good question. And we are so used to newsletters. And when I started a new program with a guy in my team, he said, we need to create a newsletter. Absolutely. And why he said that he wants to inform others about what is important to us in this program, wants to motivate them. I think the worst thing you can do is <laughs> creating a newsletter, right? Because everyone wants a newsletter, like an automatism, but we all also suffer somehow from reading those newsletters. And we see, ah, it's a newsletter. Let's skip it. Maybe I read the first two paragraphs at best. That's what I've seen a lot. Or that people said, yeah, okay, I got this email because it's the first of the quarter, right? He or she has to write it because it's the first of the quarter. So that's to the same extent what I said about this. Oh, he using a video. That's fantastic. We are blasted away. But then, oh, it's a video again. It's, it's not easy. And I think what I personally discovered is that I write the anti-newsletter that is not glossy, which doesn't have a lot of pictures and building blocks. Because it's, most of my communication is really 
just a plain email to people, ideally a very small number of people or even individuals, because that is then a communication which is personal, which is not like a mass mailing. I also lost <laughs> things and, and I, I also want to have a nice format, but in, if you want to reach people, it, it's harder because they see it as glossy advertisement. They see it as must have information. They see it as a newsletter because it's the start of a quarter or the beginning of a year. And <clears throat> I think that is something which is, which is to consider that don't go for a static frequency, go for a purpose. If there is a need for something, write it and do not wait until the first of the month and do not wait until it's super polished. For me, very hard to learn as a German, but fast is better than perfect. Mm. And uh, it's true. How often have you waited to write an email because you were looking for this and that? And then all of a sudden it became obsolete because someone else was writing something or it didn't work anymore. And you miss opportunities. And, and that is why it's important to try to have that personal touch and not a mass mailing newsletter, anonymous type of communication style, which most people do not like that much. I'm, I'm slightly thinking about the two recent newsletters that we've just uh, launched inside Consalia <laughs> and wondering what I would think of these. But I think intuitively, I think that you know, I think you talk about authenticity a little bit as well about some of the principles of communication a bit later on. And I think it, it very much sort of ticks that box, doesn't it? And also you've mentioned the word purpose a number of mm. times. And I think that's also important. And I'm guessing from you with your example of the video is that the first time around it's great and it could be perceived as being authentic but actually, if it's looked, if there's any hint of anything being mechanistic or yes. process orientated, then people will begin to question the substance. And, and of course, there is no static rules, right? It's not like gravity, which happens <laughs> whether you want or not. Of course, the newsletter as such is not a bad thing, right? I also use still the type of a newsletter think but not looking like a newsletter not too glossy not too perfect when the style and the artwork becomes more important than the message and and i've seen that also in other newsletters when the style when the content needs to fit into the style oh there is a box all the boxes are the same. It needs to fit in this box. So then you tweak the content that it fits into the style where it should be the other way around. And it still can be very, on a very regular base. For example, one of our board members, which had very little communication in, in a certain period of time and, and people were really suffering. It was also interesting to see that there was, they wanted to get a message. They wanted that she speaks to them and speaks also in the way of, of sending any communication. And that also totally changed. And after there was a discussion with the comms person and there was also a new comms person in place, it totally changed. And 
there was a regular communication which was extremely personal which was super really not much about 80% was about her and her emotions her family how she operate and the 20 in, in the 20% of the rest which was the business and and that was really new and different and and better and also it now changed into another format the spilled tea so it also has totally different titles i think you would like it if you would read it and again it's about being authentic sharing thoughts sharing your emotions and being a guiding light by doing that and not only because of corona and covid-19 of course in this time it was even more important that you build a strong bond that you are visible through your communication right that you stay connected with the people in your organization that they see you are as human as we are with the same doubts and concerns and successes and positive and negative emotions right mm. that is why by default newsletter are not bad or periodical publishing of that but when the frequency becomes more important than the content and when the style and artwork becomes more important than the content then something goes wrong hmm. i was interested again coming back to the your theme of storytelling hmm. that i think it's only 15% of all the communications yes. you saw in all the hundreds of emails had anything to do with storytelling in it but then you've also got this issue that certain leaders actually instruct their comms experts not to write stories to mm. deal with it so how do you start to address the issue of storytelling at that level because unless the leadership believe in storytelling mm. you're always going to get this rather impersonal fact-based approach to communication which in your yeah. view i think doesn't doesn't work that's true and i think that's the misunderstanding that story is not precise business that emotions are not the right thing in business life and and i think that is is a fundamental misunderstanding and of course you cannot convince everybody but you can try right you can start and the mission is not that everyone uh, is using storytelling better in communication the mission is that one more <laughs> is using storytelling in the business communication i think speaking with people since the last year and about this topic helped a lot to share my findings and to in a certain way influence people to consider that differently and to see that differently and how did i do that i reached out to some of the regional leaders when they sent communication and sent and also in in the three sub regions i all know them personally which obviously helps but i said hey you sent this communication that's interesting i did uh, recently my master on storytelling and leader communication and i can congratulate on this and that because i think it it you perfectly do this so positive feedback to encourage them to continue with that 
And with others, I gave some positive comment on something else, but also injected then my, my idea about injecting more of stories and, and that this is not a weakness. And it's hard to say whether this has an impact or not. In, in a weak moment, I would confess that I see more stories than a year ago. <laughs> and, and that's definitely good, no matter how this, this came up. And I, I also spoke, as I said, with some of the communications people. And I also said they should not stop trying to convince their customers, the people they work for, to use that because they are the experts. We also had this chat, right? You go to the doctor because he's the expert for medicine or the health, and then you get an advice. And why should you then say, I do not take that medicine. I stay with what I'm used to, right? But that's exactly what happened. You have someone, an expert for story, for communications, and that person gives a recommendation and that the first thing you do is ignoring that. <laughs> yeah. In the world of your health, you wouldn't do that. But in the world of communication, People are doing that way too often. And it's really about communication to, to show that there is room for improvement in, in that space as well, definitely. Waldemar, I think you've concluded that there were six key principles or six key findings from your research. Mm. And I think probably you've alluded to some of those already in mm in what you've shared but it would be great I think for the listener to have those kind of summarized as what you believe to be you know the 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 six key takeaways Mm. from your research project yeah yeah Uh, I think what I uh, what we already said is that being authentic in communication is is very important that is and that is why I also referred earlier that there is not the one story you need to learn, right? There is not the one message which is, which is the right one and the others are not. It's really about creating your, your own or, or finding your own story and speaking about yourself, using that to show you as a person to the people you're working with. And then the other principle is in communications is to use uh, a certain frequency. And it's better to communicate more often than too little. Usually there is a lack of communication. And what people do in the absence of information is they fill the void with sometimes weird assumptions about the business future, about the purpose of the company, about what's the next big thing, right? Or who is leaving, who is joining. The void, we cannot, void doesn't exist in nature and it doesn't exist in our mind as well. We constantly fill it up with something and it's better you speak to your people to fill it up with the things you wanted them to know and to believe upon. I think the format is less relevant. It's not necessarily that you need to be on stage. It's not necessarily that you need to have a video call. It can be a very tiny little plain email, which builds the connection between you and the people you want to give that message. Mm -hmm. And, And that's back to the frequency that it doesn't need to be the 
monthly newsletter or the quarterly newsletter, glossy paper, certain stylish format. If you have something to tell, you better should do it. And last but not least, when you pass that information, use the principle of storytelling, right? Because that is actually which helps you to create this bond between people. That also create, helps you to, to more easily tell the facts because you give it in a certain context. You make it easy to remember. You, you also know from my research that it's people do not really remember the facts as such, right? It's so hard to remember the facts. But if you have a, a catchy story, that is what then lasts. And from a leadership perspective, there's also this quote that people do not remember what you said as a leader, but they remember how you make them feel. Yeah, it's, that's, a great, that's a great comment that, that you made. And I'm not sure that, I'm not sure how many leaders actually take that into account when constructing. Yes. And, you know, I would have thought very few actually do that. That is why many people cannot remember a lot of very good managers or <laughs> leaders they had in their life. Part of the challenge is one of time, isn't it? That people are so busy that you know, the time to, to construct an email, you know, with everything else that's going on, like you said, you snatch moments in between meetings. I must send that email out to someone and... Do you have a point of view about 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 time? And, yes. Okay. I, I have one. Actually, a very strong one. <laughs> and it goes like, there is no lack of time. That's the number one excuse. It's not even a perfect excuse, but that's the number one excuse. There is no time for it. There is no lack of time. There's only different priorities. And it's like for everything. The... We all have the 24 hours a day and hopefully thanks to Matthew Walker, why we sleep, you, you spend more time in bed because that's good for health. <clears throat> I th we are all humans, right? And that is why we need some, sometimes this push also to push ourselves to do this communication. Some people would say, hey, there is also not a time to, to do this masterclass because it's two and a half years next to your job. In my case, mm -hmm. in a foreign language. And I didn't say it's easy, but it was never a problem of time if you set the right priorities. And I do not want to sound like a smarty pen because some other people gave up because they said, I didn't have the time. They had different priorities. And here with this communication, the first time you do it, it consumes more time because you do not know what you need to do or what you do differently now in your communication, maybe in your next Gonzalia newsletter, right, in the form. And I was just kidding. It's already very good. And the, but it's like with everything you practice and with everything you, which is new to you, at, initially it takes a little bit more time until it feels natural, until it feels apart. But I think it's, again, it's nothing we really need to learn like a language. Stories are a part of us already. We only didn't 
opened that up in the world of business. There is a lot of stories to tell. Sometimes it's even harder to do it only fact-based, right? Or maybe if we feel a little bit shy to let in the words we would like to say, but we feel it's not appropriate because it shows too much of us. But that's the opposite, right? Because we should be authentic. We need to build trust. We need to share our inner dialogue. Like you said, right? You had the perfect email in your head. When you forget to send it, it never happened. And, and here's the same, right? Long story short, that's the seventh principle. There's always time. Waldemar, <laughs> it's been a, a fabulous session with you. I was going to say an hour, maybe slightly over the hour. but And I think that certainly from my point of view, you've totally inspired me to rethink the way in which we communicate and tell stories. I think intuitively, there'll be few people that would argue that it's not important for selling. And I know that's in the context of selling to customers, but I think that we can apply so much of what you have concluded, not just internally, but externally as well. So I just want to thank you hugely for what you've contributed to this body of research that's taking place around sales leadership and leading sales transformation. So thank you, Waldemar, for taking part. My pleasure. And thanks for the opportunity of uh, telling my story in your podcast. (laughs) Thank you. So what's your selling approach like? Are you selling in a way that your customers want to be sold to? From our research, only 10% of salespeople sell in a way that customers want. But what do customers want when they're being sold to? It's no secret that here at Consalia, We've embedded the sales values and mindsets that customers want to see in salespeople into everything we do, from our sales business school through to our sales transformation offering. So how do you know whether or not you've got them? We have a very simple mindset survey to see if you possess these key values. It's really straightforward to use, will only take a few minutes to complete and you'll be sent your results straight after. You may be just a bit surprised at the results yourself. Check out the show notes at the end of this podcast episode. What you do with the results next is your choice. We're happy to dive deeper into these results to discuss what they mean or even explore the idea of finding out if your customers see these key values in your approach.